Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Leslie, and you're listening to the Gist of Freedom. Tonight, we have on the line Mr. Streamer. Mr. Streamer, are you on the phone? I am. I'm right here. Great. Now, you're a preservationist, and tonight you're going to talk about David Ruggles, and you're going to talk about Sojourner Truth. Uh, let us first begin with who is Mr. Streamer? Who am I? Huh? Uh, I'm a printer here in Amherst, Massachusetts, Northampton, Massachusetts area. I've been here for years, and um, since I went to college back in the 60s here, and um, I have worked on this with other many other people to get a, a wonderful statue of Sojourner Truth built in our little town of Florence, north of Northampton. Uh, and since then, I've been working uh, to also establish the David Ruggles Center for Early Florence History and Underground Railroad Studies. Wonderful. Um, first, explain to the audience, who is David Ruggles and how is he connected to Boston? Because we're celebrating him out here in the New York area as well. Well, um, I had uh, mentioned before, um, before, actually, Ruggles doesn't have too much of a connection with Boston. He has much more of a connection with uh, New York City. Uh, he was a freeborn African-American from Norwich, Connecticut, went off to New York City to find his fortune, became a grocery store. Uh, he opened a grocery store, and within that grocery store, he opened a reading room for African-Americans who were not allowed to uh, go into libraries at that time in New York. And he later became the first African-American bookseller in the country. He became the first African-American professional journalist in the country when he established the magazine, The Mirror of Liberty. But perhaps most importantly, David Ruggles was the secretary of the Vigilance Committee in New York, which was sworn to help fugitive slaves as they continued up the coastal routes and he was probably the most active of the Underground Railroad agents in New York City in the late 1830s. Um, and he helped over 600 fugitive slaves to freedom. He okay. got sick. He got very, very sick. And a woman who used to live up here, another abolitionist, very famous, who I encourage your listeners to look into, Lydia Mariah Child, was living with Isaac Hopper, a colleague of David Ruggles, and heard about how sick Ruggles had become and suggested that he come up here to Northampton, Massachusetts and join the Northampton Association of Education and Industry. And that's how he came into our our area. Now, whatever happened with his illness, could you uh, go into depth about the illness? You know, um, before we leave New York, though, I'd like to mention also that he was the principal fugitive assistant that helped Frederick Douglass along his way to freedom. And um, there is a great new biography of David Ruggles out written by Graham Hodges that people could look into um, if they want to look uh, for more on Ruggles there. So he came up to Northampton Association, which was a utopian community of Garrisonian abolitionists founded to end slavery and create a new social order, basically. They had, find, they had come to realize that the Industrial Revolution was benefiting mainly the rich, 
and um, they banded together to try and have a community where they they were all uh, workers who benefited and owned their own operation. So there were 120 of them up here in Florence. Ruggles came up. He uh, joined up, and over 18 months, he nursed himself back to health using the techniques of the water cure of uh, Dr. Victor Prisnitz in Germany. And it was through a correspondence course. He did this really all on his own and used the hydropathic techniques that he learned um, to get healthy again, and he did. He never entirely regained his eyesight. He was mostly blind uh, from 1838, 39 on. Um, and, and while he was here, his sight got a little better. It would go would get better and then get worse, but his general health, he had horrible digestive problems, mostly made worse by the allopathic medicines he was given by most doctors in New York. Mm. Wow. Could you tell us a little bit about the the overall health, um, the conditions of everyone, you know, what was the the age, um, the uh, the age uh, that people most lived to? Well, at that time, you know, the life expectancy was much shorter. But many, you know, given a chance, one of the things people get the an idea is, is that people didn't live to ripe old ages. Largely people caught some disease or other and died. I mean, it's not as though people weren't, couldn't live until into their 80s. Most, some people did, and many people in Florence and other places did too. But many people caught whatever illnesses were out there, tuberculosis um, and other horrible diseases that they didn't have treatments for back then, um, could kill people at a very young age. Um, and in fact, David Ruggles himself got sick again and died on December 16, 1849, at the age of 39. Okay. Now, um, is the place where he was... Um treating his illness, is that place still in existence? Well, one of the discoveries and one of the things I've been working on hardest up in Florence is to rediscover the places where African Americans lived while they were in Florence. And since the statue went in in 2002, we've discovered Sojourner Truth's house, David Ruggles' house, Basil Dorsey and Thomas H. Jones' house, the home of Joseph Wilson, Henry Anthony, Ezekiel Cooper, all of them uh, either former slaves or African-American abolitionists. And so, yes, we found the house uh, in which David Ruggles began treating patients. As I said, he got better, and he noticed at the end of his 18-month self-treatment that he had become able to sense the what he termed the cutaneous electricity in someone's skin, and it really translated in, into his sense of whether the water cure would help them or not, and he became quite famous. Now, people that would scoff at that should remember that this was a, uh, an early aspect of naturopathic medi uh, medicine and also a time almost like the New Age in the 1970s and the, the hippie culture in the 60s. Um, the 1840s were a time when people were experimenting with alternative forms of medicine and phrenology, um, was another thing, animal magnetism. Hypnotism, think about it, was invented in 1848 by Count Mesmer. So right around the same time, Ruggles was working on hydropathy, water cure treatment, 
all these other naturopathic forms. And in fact, in Northampton, Sylvester Graham of the famous Graham Cracker was uh, treating, you know, having people have have healthier diets as part of a, a naturopathic regimen. Now you went off with a list of people, many of the people on the list I've never heard of. Could you give us a little snippet? And before you do that, tell us why did they relocate to um, Amherst? Why did Ruggles? No, why did the list of people? You had a whole list of houses you discovered. Why was this a place that they were attracted to? That's right. Those were all African Americans um, that um, found Florence, um, what became Florence in 1852. Before that, it was known as the community and other names. Um, partly because Ruggles was there, but partly because other abolitionists had found um, that on the Underground Railroad, before the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, places in Massachusetts like Florence and Northampton were actually destinations on the Underground Railroad, where um, fugitive slaves, uh, self-emancipated slaves, if they felt that they didn't want to continue on to Canada and if jobs were available and if there were some people who wanted to to hire them in the mills here, um, then they were able to settle down and buy their houses and actually become voting citizens. People forget that this was the Underground Railroad wasn't simply this this track this uh, straight track up to Canada as best you can. Oftentimes, people would try and settle down in the northern states where they could find a friendly environment, and certainly Florence was one of them with Ruggles' presence there as a big factor in why so many uh, settled in African Ameri- in, uh, in Florence, which was 10% African American by 1850. Okay. Now, could you go over that list again slowly and okay. give us a little snippet of each person? I will. I will. I will. Um, so people, um, your guests, no doubt know or have heard the name of Sojourner Truth. Ruggles likely had met Sojourner Truth down in New York State, New York City, when she was there. She had joined this utopian community earlier on, and she um, was a former slave in New York State who became a great evangelical preacher, and then finally an anti-slavery and women's rights uh, advocate, um, starting off at a Ruggles-organized. Um, rally in downtown Northampton, Massachusetts. Basil Dorsey was a fugitive slave from Liberty, Maryland, who escaped in 1836, came up uh, through uh, Gettysburg um, and through um, Pennsylvania, was arrested, escaped again, got off on a a technicality, um, came through uh, Philadelphia, was helped by Robert Purvis, who, uh, whose work on the Underground Railroad, I think, overlapped some with William Still. Um, and then he came up to New York City and finally up to Charlemont and landed in Florence, where he lived the rest of his life. Ezekiel Cooper and Joseph Wilson were uh, former slaves. Wilson was one of the ten um, fugitive slaves who called Northampton to meeting to resist the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. And his house is at 129 Nonatuck Street, next to Ezekiel Cooper's, which is at 133. Henry Anthony was the first African American to, that we know of that lived in Florence. He was probably here when 
Lydia Mariah Child came here to raise sugar beet as an alternative to slave-grown sugar cane. Um, and Henry Anthony was uh, worked with her uh, on that project. Uh, and then Thomas H. Jones was a rather famous uh, abolitionist, black abolitionist speaker, a former slave from Wilmington, North Carolina, who wrote a famous slave narrative um, in 1849, came to Florence in 1854, moved on to Worcester and New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he lived out his days, and his slave narrative went through over eight editions. So that's basically the list I gave you, I think. Okay. Now, what are the demographics, or what is the demographic today of Florence? Um, in terms of uh, African-American presence? Yes. I, I, We don't really have good statistics, but it couldn't be more than 1% one or, one or 2%. Hmm. Do you know when it shifted and why? Well, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, like I was saying, it was, it's a really wonderful document for studying all this stuff, is the 1850 census, which in Florence, it's interesting, it happened in July and August, uh, and the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in September of 1850. So you really get a snapshot of what Florence looked like uh, just before that. And by 1855, and so there were, it was a small place. Florence is only 600 people, and say 60 were African Americans. By 1855, um, only 38 remain, and by 1860, only 22 African Americans stayed in Florence, and 11 of them were members of Basil Dorsey's family. And uh, the remaining African Americans that are living in Florence today. Are any of them descendants, or throughout none your research, have you met as far as any we descendants? Know, as far as we know, none of them are descended from any of these people. And you haven't been able to contact any of the descendants? No, not really. Only um, in a sort of in a distant way, a couple of uh, the descendants of Sojourner Truth, but we haven't found any Ruggles descendants. Okay. Sojourner now, you Truth mentioned Sugar Beet. Uh, yeah. That was mm -hmm. a form of, uh, of boycotting, wasn't it? It was. Um, Lydia Mariah Child and her husband, David Lee Child, were um, free labor um, activists. In, in other words, they believed that um, Northerners should boycott products that were produced by slave labor. In fact, they were heading to Texas to join a free labor commune in Matamoros, Texas, uh, before they came here, just because the, the it became too dangerous down in Texas, so they came here instead. David went off to uh, Belgium and learned how to raise sugar beets and heard that our area on the Connecticut River here in Massachusetts was the best place to raise sugar beets in the country, so he came here to try the experiment. What are the forms of, of boycotts? Did, um, um, learn. I'm 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 not uh, I'm, I actually don't know of, from that period what other you know we have our experience um, with uh, boycotts of uh, certain California um, you know back in the 70s Cesar Chavez and others um, I I'm not that aware of the other kinds of products that were boycotted. Oh okay. All right, so we have uh, David Ruggles and we have the General Truth. Are there any books written from that era 
by David Ruggles or Sojourner or someone that was close to them or about them? Well, um, we should, you know, one of the things I found most interesting and one of, what's really the thought of it has driven a lot of my involvement in this history is that in this very small place of Florence, Massachusetts, you, we have where Frederick Douglass first met Sojourner Truth. And Douglas would come to Florence to visit David Ruggles and to be with these other Garrisonian radicals and have speeches in downtown Northampton and that. And I'm I'm saying this because uh, Frederick Douglass was in Florence one month before he published his famous slave narrative, his first slave narrative in 1845. And he actually had his portrait painted here while while he was here just before publishing that. He had to leave the country just after that uh, to protect his, uh, himself because uh, he had exposed himself as a fugitive slave. Sojourner Truth may have gotten the idea from her friend Frederick Douglass um, because she saw how well his narrative was selling that she uh, worked with a woman named Olive Gilbert to tell her story. She could herself could neither read nor write, but she basically dictated the story of her life to a friend, Olive Gilbert, and in 1850, she published her um, Sojourner Truth, The Life of a Northern Slave, I think it was called. Uh, Thomas H. Jones also wrote his narrative in 1849. William Green, another a fugitive slave who lived in Springfield. People should remember that John Brown uh, was in Springfield at, uh, at this time. He came back to Springfield to formed the League of Gileadites to resist the fugitive slave law, so all that was going on in this area at the same time. Ruggles himself never wrote a memoir, which is too bad, but he did write uh, other articles uh, and um, magazine-length uh, articles against slavery um, that people can find online. Wow, okay, great. I'm glad uh, you uh, mentioned that. Now, you also talked about this fugitive slave law. For people who are not aware of what the fugitive slave law is, could you explain? The, uh, the fugitive slave law came through as a compromise, part of the compromise of 1850, um, in which Daniel Webster and other norner, northerners um, basically um, caved in to the demands of the southerners to, uh, in the fugitive slave law to increase the penalties, more than double the penalties for helping fugitive slaves. The fugitive slave law, uh, there was a former fugitive slave law of 1793, which was much weaker, um, but the new fugitive slave law allowed, um, if you had a, um, uh, basically a writ um, that said this person was a fugitive slave, um, the local sheriffs could impanel you. In fact, as a private citizen, you were obliged, and if you knew about a, a fugitive slave in your area, you were obliged to turn them in. And if they if if they wanted to follow the letter of the law, which in the end, very few northern magistrates actually did. Uh, in a way, the fugitive slave law backfired horribly on the South in that it all its real effect finally was, because so few fugitive slaves were actually returned to the South based on the new law, because it was very expensive to come up and try and catch your slaves, especially in the North where people began to resist resist that. 
Um, so few, uh, slave catchers had a very hard time of it in the in the North. So at any rate, uh, it was a thousand dollar penalty. A thousand dollars back then was a lot of money. Uh, six months in prison uh, if you helped fugitive slaves. And uh, possibly the most insidious part of it was that judges who ruled in favor of the slave catcher um, would get a ten dollar. Um, fee for acting on the case, and if they found against the slave catcher, they only got five dollars. Very wow. interesting uh, kind of aspect of that law, which um, we we look back on as being kind of primitive and unjust. But that was the, the nature of the beast back then. Now, the original fugitive slave law you said was pretty weak, but didn't it require that um, that a slave catcher would have to uh, obtain a warrant? before yep. they can accuse. And with That's the right. new fugitive, fugitive slave law, the warrant was no longer required. The warrant so they could was, just accuse right. you just by on site. That's right. It was up to you to prove that you weren't. Right. And now the Vigilance Committee, you also mentioned um, the Vigilance Committee. Could you go into depth about, you know, what were some of the activities that went on with this business committee, and who was involved? Um, well, Ruggles was the secretary. Um, there was a fellow named Barney Korst. Um, now the other fellow is going to escape my name, um, and my memory, um, who was the president. Many of the people on the vigilance committee were more conservative in their tactics than Ruggles was. Ruggles was very bold, and he took it upon himself, again with Isaac Hopper, too, to educate themselves fully about the laws of, in New York City that bore on um, fugitive slaves and their rights while they were in the city, so that they became what amounted to like paralegal advisors to slave, fugitive slaves. And Ruggles was known to board ships and make sure the ship's captain and the slaves aboard ships in New York Harbor knew that if they stayed there for nine months, they were free men. Um, he would knock on the doors of uh, slave owners who had brought their slaves to New York uh, and make sure the slaves knew that same law, that they would be free if they stayed there longer than nine months. He was thrown down flights of steps. He had uh, a price on his head, so he, he risked a lot for it. And for this kind of bold um, style that he had, he ran afoul of the more conservative members of the Vigilance Committee, who by 1839 um, and 40 um, removed him from his position. Is it true that he also uh, published some of the um, slave catchers' names and, yep. and people? Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I'm. No, I, I actually can't go in, into depth about it myself. Oh, okay. um, like I said, uh, Graham, Graham Russell Hodges, in mm -hmm. his new book um, that people should look into, David Ruggles, a radical black abolitionist and the Underground Railroad in New York City, does go into a lot of detail about that. And, but I haven't memorized uh, those that aspect of it. Wow. And in the business committee, um, I was told that the slave catchers were stealing children, and that yeah. uh, part of the, ro the role was to well, you can protect yeah. the children yeah, you can from imagine. being kidnapped. Yeah, I mean, if people should remember that slaves um, were very, very valuable. If you could 
you know, slaves were worth thousands, sometimes a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars, which was a huge amount of money back then. And so, since they, the slave catchers, in a sense, had been empowered by this new law, and that the new law had become more vague, actually, in what it required in terms of proof, it made sense that if you could capture young, sort of less strong, you know young people, African Americans, and get them into the South, um, you could make yourself a handsome profit. So yes, that did happen, and that is gone into somewhat in Hodge's book. Now, um, it seems like you read Hodge's book. Any other books that you, that you came across you want to recommend to the audience? Well, the, the, the principal book that really got me into this whole story up here in Florence is called The Communitarian Moment, The Radical Challenge of the Northampton Association by Christopher Clark. It's now available through the University of Massachusetts Press, but it's also out there in um, hardback uh, on A. Libris, and uh, you can find used copies of it. It's really one of the best books about Garrisonian abolitionists. There's another book, and one of the things that we're working on now at the Ruggles Center with Historic Northampton is to research the role of the other wing of abolitionists, the evangelical Liberty Party wing of, of abolitionists. And it turns out Northampton has, there's a lot of that kind of history here. The Tappan brothers were from Northampton. Uh, Joshua Levitt uh, got his law degree here. And um, it was quite a, a, a prominent station on the Underground Railroad. Not Garrisonian, though, um, through the uh, more evangelical, the, the abolitionists that decided to stay in their churches. And so um, that there's a book called Beyond Garrison uh, by Bruce Laurie, which is worth looking into for that wing of abolition. That's wonderful. Um, the Lewis... Uh, Louis Tapan and Tapan Brothers, could you tell us the famous case that they were involved with? Um, I'm not sure which one you refer to. Uh, unless, it, uh, Well, I know Ar Arthur Tapan was involved in the Prudent Crandall case down in, in Connecticut. But which case, are you thinking, which case are you, are you thinking of? Uh, the uh, Amistad. The Amistad, yeah. Yeah, they were um, deeply involved with um, the Amistad, and um, and like you said, I I never heard of the the evangelic um, abolitionists, and I didn't know they were part of that. So I I really want to get that book, and I yeah um, yeah Bruce Laurie's book is is really quite good. There's another one, another How do you spell uh, Bruce biography name? of uh, Laurie is spelled L A U R I, Bruce, okay. and All the right. book is called Beyond Garrison. Okay. All right. What were you about to say? I'm sorry. Um, you mentioned another only, book. Uh, well, uh, one of the uh, one of the cases that Tappan became involved with, and before the split in abolition, there the whole abolition uh, movement kind of came apart in 1839. I mean, 1839 and 1840, over the issue of women's rights and political action. The Garrisonians believe that the women should be involved as equal members of uh, abolitionist societies, whereas the evangelicals felt the role of women was to um, support the men and to not really speak or take really uh, forward positions in the movement. 
and also uh, the Garrisonians believe that abolition, uh, that slavery was a sin, and that you tried to convince people through moral suasion and not through the ballot box or through other uh, means to uh, end slavery. So along those lines, they they split. Um, but before that, they worked together, and Garrison and Tappan worked on this case um, of uh, Prudence Crandall, who was a white school teacher in Canterbury, Connecticut, who admitted a talented young black girl to her class named Sarah Harris. The town rose up and told uh, her that she had to close the school, that they weren't going to to let her educate Sarah Harris. She closed the school and reopened it as a school only for African-American girls. They uh, passed the black law in Connecticut, which forbid any out-of-state black students from being educated in Connecticut, convicted her of the law, and put her in prison. And after that, um, Garrison heard about it, Tappan heard about it. They, they hired the best lawyers to get her off. They got her off uh, out of jail. She reopened her school, but the town townspeople poisoned her wells and uh, acted um, to try and burn her uh, school down, and she finally had to close the school down. The reason why I go into this is that this was in northeastern Connecticut, partly where David Ruggles was from, um, Canterbury, uh, Wyndham County, um, Brooklyn, Connecticut, and the people that settled in Florence were from that area. The people that came to our area were sort of um, uh, veterans of the Prudence Crandall case and had left their churches because the churches had been complicit in the persecution of Prudence Crandall. And when they found a, a silk mill on, uh, for sale up here in Northampton uh, cheaply, they decided to come up and form their utopian community. Okay, um, the Vigilance Committee. Let's go back to the Vigilance Committee and tell us, you know, you mentioned Ruggles was a secretary. Mm-hmm. Were there, wasn't this a multiracial group of people and uh, from different professions and different things like that? I believe it was, yeah. Um, I have Hodge's book here, and I'm trying to think of the name of the uh, the fellow that uh, Ruggles um Worked well, that's with, not that uh, important. The, the, the point we were yeah. trying to make is that this was a multi-racial um, and you know diverse group of people. And yeah. the other point I think um, we should uh, bring home um, is the the different events, as you said earlier. Um, this future slave law backfired on the slaveocracy. And could you give us other instances, such as the case, how they galvanized around prudence? Were there other instances that you know of where um, the community, black and white, got together and said that we're going to stand up, you're not going to kidnap someone? Well, people Um, should never underestimate um, how much the case of Anthony Burns um, really galvanized um, the North against um, slavery. That the federal government made a case out of this one escaped slave who was put on trial in Boston 
of all places, Boston being made an example of a place that was quite an underground railroad center and where, Afri where there was a fairly large African-American settled community. Um, Lewis Hayden and others were there. Um, that they decided that this was, they're going to draw the line in the sand with the Anthony Burns case and send 5,000 troops up to Boston to escort him back to slavery. Um, and Frederick Douglass was there for that. And many, but many other, and you're, you know, like you were saying, it was blacks and whites together. This was even perhaps a more, because it was a unique one time event and the Fugitive Slave Act is, that had many kind of ramifications. This was a specific event that really uh, mobilized people. I found more memoirs here in Northampton recently, and the, just in the middle of just normal kind of writing, this guy heard about Anthony Burns and goes on for a paragraph about how, how uh, angry he had gotten for that. So that was in 1854. Um, another case was the Lewis Sims case, or Thomas Sims case, but uh, I would say Anthony Burns is perhaps the most um, galvanizing. And then, of course, uh, Harper's Ferry, 1859, with John Brown. Wow. I mean, we could go on and on um, all night because you go into details about so many different aspects of the Underground Railroad and the movement and how it splintered. I mean, um, are you thinking about writing a book? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I would love to see where, where what I what I could add to the story. Bruce Laurie and I were working on, like I said, the downtown abolition. So he has a new now downtown Northampton abolition. So he has a new book that'll be coming out within a year on these abolitionists. He's going to treat um, one of Hodges did a great job in his book, but uh, because he carried he covered the whole sweep of Ruggles' career. Um, Lori will go into more detail about his local career here, because um, and so this that's a book coming up. But you know, I I think the book I would write would be a lot about finding these houses and the, the fact and and how do houses like this get forgotten? You know, an me, illustrated book. book. An uh, illustrated an il book. It would be an it would be an illustrated book. Yeah, um, we have pictures of uh, the floor joists we found. The, ha the house of the fugitive slave. His name was John Brown, as it turns out. <coughs> fugitive slave John Brown at uh, 72 Cherry Street, downtown Northampton. And we found his little 16 by 22 foot house uh, with this other house built up around it. You know, but but the floor joists and the original foundation and his chimney and everything else is still there. This is partly what happens. These houses get disguised because they used them. They never threw anything away back then much, you know. Uh, right. So they would you, they would either move them to a new location, and that made them hard to find, or they would build houses up around them. That's the case with Sojourner's, Sojourner Truth's house, is that it doesn't quite look like it did in her day anymore because they built, they kept building onto it, you know. Ruggles' house, on the other hand, looks pretty much just like it did. Um, which I'm very happy about. So if we wanted to visit this summer, mm -hmm. and uh, what would we see? How many houses could we actually see? And how many uh, points of interest do you think? I would, I, you know, we can't cover them all. There's that many in Florence or downtown Northampton. There's 33 sites on the in the downtown Northampton uh, tour that we could give with about 
20 of them extant. Uh, the rest are demolished or gone. In Florence, there's much more there to talk about, and there's probably, um, I would say, 20 sites that uh, we can, uh, where the houses are still there. And then there are these wonderful places like the Pine Grove, where the abolitionists met in the summertime, uh, where there are still pine trees of the same species right there in the Pine Grove, and the Locust Grove, where they also had camp meetings, and the Mill River Dam, where that provided the power for the mills. So there's really quite a lot left, and there's plenty to see. Wonderful. And um, you, Mr. Streamer, uh, what about you as a child? You look back in your childhood. Did anything um, occur in your life that would have given you a hint that you would be so deeply involved with this type of research? Any epiphanies? That's an interesting question. Anything uh, there, and, yeah, I did have a, a chi- an African-American um, friend of mine in grade school um, who I got very close to, and my parents wouldn't allow me to see her anymore, which was really, I couldn't, you know, it was like my earliest encounter with that kind of, why that didn't make any sense to me. I was young enough that none of that had been put into my head yet, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and... And I grew up in that, you know, I was 13 in 1963 for Martin Luther, for the March on Washington. It all kind of really resonated with me, you know. And the general, I mean, I don't see how white America can can come of age without taking on some of the guilt for what happened to African Americans in this country. So I think maybe that hit me early on and Mm -hmm. became something I wanted to think about. But really, the inspiration of these larger-than-life figures uh, discovering that I lived in the place where Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass met, you know. So when did you learn about Sojourner? When when is the first time you ever heard about Sojourner uh, or Frederick? How did you learn? Do you remember? I mean, I I think I heard about Sojourner Truth back in college, you know, or even in... uh, I had an... I was lucky enough to have um, an African-American teacher of my American history class in uh, Ohio, in a little town in Ohio, and uh, and so she, I think, more than most um, teachers gave us some, a little more history of African Americans. So, but um, I didn't really, I, I've been, worked in a worker co-op all my life, so I've been into economic democracy for a long time. And okay. what really set me on this history, frankly, wasn't the African-American component as much as it was the economic justice and the fact that this group of Garrisonian abolitionists that founded Florence were lived in one big worker co-op of 120 where everybody had an equal vote, and African-Americans, fugitive slaves, women, all voted equally with the white men in 1842. It was crazy. That didn't happen anywhere else that I'm aware of. Tell us more about this co-op. I, I'm trying to grasp it, but I really don't understand. I know what a co-op is as far as an apartment building. And right. I know that they're popping <laughs> yeah. around yeah. with the food co-ops, yeah. with the, yeah. the vegetarians, and, you know, there's different types of co-ops. Right. Explain. Yeah. So, I mean, just transfer that to a business, that structure to a business. Um, Did they share and resources? And so they, they all shared this 
raw material. Yeah, and they 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 were very ambitious. They wanted to um, actually manufacture silk, so it was quite an industrial undertaking. And they organized themselves into departments. And Sojourner Truth herself was the head of a department at the Northampton Association. So they would elect the heads of departments. They were big enough. They had to have this kind of structure. They couldn't function as a collective as uh, so well. So they would they would elect people um, to be not overseers but act in that role of manager. Um, but when they had annual meetings, they all had equal votes about what went on. Um, I'm from Patterson, and, New Jersey, which is nicknamed Silk City, founded by Alexander uh-huh. Hamilton. And I uh-huh. think the first company that Patterson had is very, very similar to what you're talking about called the SUM, S-U-M. And I think what you're talking about is what that organization was trying to do back in the 1700s. Um, yeah, and then there was a, a later group called the North American Phalanx that was hmm. in New Jersey, and it was a, um, uh, a another utopian community um, based on this guy, Charles Fourier, who was a, a French predecessor of Karl Marx, who believed the world should be organized into these large communes. And the North American Phalanx, it was a, as it's called, a P-H-A-L-A-N-X, people could look that up, was one of the longer live ones. And it was, I can't remember what town in New Jersey, but it was down in New Jersey. Well, I, I understand that the silk was a way, a form of boycotting. I mean, we we can look at we, uh, definitely. I've always wondered how consciously the Northampton Association went into silk as an alternative to uh, cotton. I believe they did, mm-hmm. but um, I'm not so sure it was the driving reason why they right. did because they were looking for an industry around which to build this industrial community. And and um, you also mentioned water, right? There's falls, you said. In, in in your community, some kind of oh, like waterfall? we have in Patterson, the Great Falls. You had some yeah, kind of water hydro plant or something. Yeah, they were. Well, there's not a hydro plant here. There, I mean, there's a much bigger falls in the Connecticut River down in South Hadley and Holyoke. But this was all along a, a tributary of the Connecticut, which was the Mill River. And there's quite a there's a 18 foot fall that basically drove the industry that was in Florence. They would take water off of there and bring it through the mills and let it fall through the mills. Um, awesome. And that, and think, that same mm-hmm. dam is still here, and the foundation of the grist mill that started all the industry in Florence is still here. Wow. And um, the technology at that time, that was pretty high tech, the, the dams and the mills, and wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, um, the steamboat. Can you tell us anything about the steamboat? I can't. Steamers? The only um, the distinctive, we didn't have, the, one of the things that happened in our town was a, a big canal that was dug uh, just mm-hmm. before trains came in. Right. And so they tried to bring the canal boats through Northampton, and it was a huge economic failure where people lost a million million dollars on on trying to make the canals work, and then the railroads came in and just changed everything. 
Excellent. Wow. Well, so it seems as though um, we had a very good talk. I really learned a lot about the uh, beet, um, the sugar beet, and I have a lot to look up and, and also read. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I can't wait for your book to come out. But before you go, <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to have you back on with your book. Um, but before you leave, Mr. Streamer, um, tell us about these two. Uh, I know I know you mentioned one organization, the Ruggles. And, you know, give us the history and how it was developed and who was a part of it and what you, what is the mission. Because you have a wonderful Facebook page. I'm just taking everything from your page and sharing it on my page. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, I wish I had more time to spend, just load it up because there's so many images that, and, and stories to tell. The David Ruggle Center really um, came out of the, the uh, um, a movement to save this house that was going to be torn down uh, and made into uh, condos uh, on the site. And um, we knew the house was directly across from the where the silk mill had been where Sojourner Truth lived and Frederick Douglass visited and Garrison visited and all these people were right across the street, I mean 150 feet from this house. And there were none of the, none left like it. Had this house gone on that street, there would have, would have been um, very little left to interpret um, from that period right there. So we... Um, Luckily, in Northampton, we have a demolition delay, so houses that, historic houses that are about to get demolished, if the Historic Commission says so, they can delay the demolition for up to a year. And we worked with during that year with the owner of the property and convinced him and worked with him, and we saved the house, and he built his development behind the house in as friendly a way as we could figure out. And gave us, and the city basically gave us $150,000 to preserve the house and start this um, this history museum in honor of David Ruggles and Sojourner Truth and others. So that's how it started, and, and since 2008, we've been trying to raise the rest of the money we need to get our um, our wheelchair accessibility and get our galleries all made and get all the renovations done that we need, and we're getting close. So. Um, I think by the fall we'll be ready to open. Wonderful. And the markers, the national uh, historical sites, are you uh, registered? These homes that we you have. Here? We have two um, houses in Florence um, that are on the national re register with an underground railroad context. The Thomas um, H. Jones Basil Dorsey House at 191 Nonatuck Street. And then the Roth Homestead at 123 Meadow Street um, is also there. The National Park Services, uh, people should be aware, have put up a site called Aboard the Underground Railroad, and those houses, the story of those houses is listed there. They're also on the National Park Services Underground Railroad Network to Freedom, as is the David Ruggles Center as a facility. Wonderful. All right, in closing, do you have any parting words? Uh, Come visit us. Um, we'll be having walking tours uh, July 21st at 10 o'clock, and then the next one will be um, the third week in August on uh, the 18th. Um, and we give walking tours, and people can get in touch with us through the David Ruggles Center site. Um, 
uh, info at David Ruggles Center comes to me, and I'm happy to meet with people. Luckily, my workplace keeps me flexible enough. I can set up and talk, uh, leave work and go talk to people about Florence. So people should get in touch if they'd like to come visit. Your email and your telephone number? Um, my email is... Um, it would be info at davidrugglescenter.org. And unfortunately, I can't list my telephone number. Okay. The center doesn't have a phone yet because it hasn't opened up. We don't have a phone yet. at the Ruggles Center yet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Mr. Streamer, we want to have you back on um, when you officially open up. I hope you guys okay. will invite me. I'd like to come well, I down. hope you can come up and uh, be happy to drop everything I'm doing and give you the tour. All right. Thanks so much, and um, Thank you. I look forward to Facebooking with you some more. Checking out your All pictures. All right. All righty. Have okay. a good one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.